I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest on this episode is Alexi Lalas. Now, the first time I became aware of Alexi was during the 1994 FIFA World Cup, which was held in the United States, and he was playing for the U.S. men's national team during a summer in which Americans embraced the world's most popular sport. He went on to become the first American to play in Italy's Serie A, and when Major League Soccer kicked off in 1996, he returned and spent his playing career helping launch the league during stints with the New England Revolution, Kansas City Wizards, and LA Galaxy, where he won numerous competitions, including the MLS Cup, before retiring from playing in 2002. His post-playing career has included stints as general manager of the San Jose Earthquakes, New York Red Bulls, and LA Galaxy. Alexi currently works as an analyst for Fox Sports and hosts the State of the Union podcast. Last year, he released his eighth album of music, Melt Away. So today, I get to speak about two of my favorite things, soccer and music, Alexi, welcome. Oh my goodness, you read it exactly as I wrote it. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. I love it. This is a uh, an incredible pleasure. Like you said, you know, two of these wonderful things that obviously have been huge parts of both of our lives here, and uh, it's a real honor to get to speak to you about it. Thank you so much. We'll get to the music a little later on, but first up, uh, you have said that the summer of 1994 changed your life. What was your life like up until that moment? Yeah, so I was a, I guess, a typical American soccer player uh, before that, in that I grew up in the 70s and 80s playing soccer. Soccer, as we know, in the United States is not king. And so there was an element of being niche. Um, You know, I grew up in the suburbs, and so it was, you know, Slurpees and Bubble Yum and MTV uh, and soccer as this, you know, to many strange game, but I fell into it. And obviously, 1994 changed not just my life. I'm, I'm talking to you today because of the power of a World Cup and what a World Cup can do to an individual. It changed my life forever. But it also changed the perception of the United States in terms of what soccer could be when it is done at the highest level and the pageantry and the singing and the um, you know the global aspect of it, the international threads, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I went from you know, just being a, an American soccer player to being known everywhere around the world. The aesthetic had something to do with it and a lot of hair and there was a lot of hair ago. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I milked it for all it was worth on and off the field and had a blast doing it. Something else we have in common that I didn't know until this morning is that we were both born in towns called Birmingham, mine in the British West Midlands, yours in, in Michigan. Uh, I know you grew up in a house where your dad was a professor. Your mom was a writer. What kind of kid were you? I was, I would think that I was a typical Midwest suburban kid with all of the things that I mentioned. And and again, growing up in the 70s and 80s, the only difference was, um, you know, my father was Greek. Uh, my real name is Panayotis, right? And my my parents at least had the, the wherewithal to know at that point that they weren't going to send this kid to, <laughs> to school being called Panayotis. And so we settled on Alexi. Um, but you know, you, you would look at me and you say, oh, well, you know, this six foot four now, uh, redhead Greek, it, it was, it was not something that people could, could understand, but this is what happens when a girl from Jersey meets a kid from Athens who comes over to go to university in the, uh, in the States. But, you know, I, I, I grew up, like I said, in Michigan, uh, where the law is you play hockey. I grew up playing much more hockey actually than soccer uh, growing up and my idols weren't soccer players in that on my wall 
it was much more about having hockey players or musicians on my wall than soccer players. And that was just, I mean, the first professional soccer player I ever really saw, someone that you will know from uh, from your background, uh, actually just recently passed away, Trevor Francis. Mm. He came over and he actually played for the Detroit Express and they played in the Pontiac Silverdome, which was about 15 minutes outside of where I grew up in Detroit. And I remember going up and watching this I don't know what I thought was just this godlike type figure running around and rest in peace, by the way, the Pontiac Silverdome, it's, it's no, no more, but, you know, run around and play soccer. And he could, even though it was 15 minutes out, outside my house, he and what he did could not be further from my dreams growing up there in the seventies and eighties. So all of that I have done in soccer, I never grew up thinking, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And I don't say that with any sense of pride. It's just the reality. I'm glad that there's kids that grow up today with so much more to expect and so many more resources and such, let's be honest, greater ambition. Mm. Did you think you would be an athlete? From a young age, uh, I was good at sports. And my parents, again, were smart enough to recognize because my mom was a writer and my dad um, was a professor. And so I came from a very academic household. And they at least saw that this kept me out of trouble and that I was good at it. And they were incredibly supportive, even though they had very little connection to sports and in particular to soccer and uh, and hockey. But it, this was something that I did, that something that was my own um, and something that I obviously excelled at. But again, I never thought about being professional at it. It was always, well... You know, what what are you going to do? You know, your education, are you how are your grades in class? Where are you going to go to college if you're mm. going to go to college? All that kind of stuff. But it, it didn't not until I got older that I even think, hey, this is even a possibility that somebody's actually going to pay me money to kick a ball. It's an amazing thing for anybody to make a living playing sports professionally. And so few people actually get to do it. And I know that you consider yourself very lucky to have had that opportunity. As that part of your life was coming to an end, because uh, a professional athlete's uh, longevity isn't much past early 30s, right. it's tough for a lot of people to to figure out what's next. Were you setting up what was next for you before the, the end of your playing career? Yeah, I mean, because it was never anything that I expected to have happen, um, I always looked at it, whatever level I got to as, if this is as good as it gets, it's much more than I ever thought that I, that I would have. Yeah. And so that was that was a, a almost a good way to go about it because I ended up appreciating it, but also recognizing that it could stop like that. And for most athletes, they don't ride off into the sunset. Um, I, I get asked now as an older guy uh, from young athletes uh, and young soccer players uh, advice. And I always tell them, look, if you see a jumping off point, really look at it because the reality is that it's not going to end the way that you want it. And so if you have something that you can go to that is going to last you for many, many years, you can continue to play until you literally can't run anymore or nobody will pay you to do it anymore. But that finite type of moment, it, it can be brutal for athletes. And a lot of a lot of athletes struggle to find something to replace that with. And many realize eventually that you cannot because there's nothing that equals it. You can do things that excite you and maybe even excite you even more, but it's never going to be the exact same uh, same feeling. So I was always thinking about what am I going to do when nobody's going to pay me to kick a ball anymore? Mm -hmm. And if and when that moment came, I actually took a sabbatical in the middle of my career. I guess I call it a sabbatical, but I took a year off basically. And I did television and, and it really helped me to kind of get an idea of, you know, the work obviously that I'm involved in right now. And I was really fortunate to be able to do that. And then I went back and, and played 
understanding again that that door is going to close and that door literally did close and i was left looking all right what do i do now before you became a broadcaster we mentioned in in the intro that you became uh, an administrator mm -hmm. and when david beckham came to mls you were gm of the galaxy that was a game changer for the sport here in the states at that time but perhaps even more so now than anyone could have imagined with beckham being instrumental in bringing Lionel messi to miami just how important do you think that move will prove to be for the sport here in the states yeah, I mean, I think it's is you're look you're talking about some seminal types of moments, not just for Major League Soccer, but I think for soccer in the United States and North America for that for that matter. So when I stopped playing, uh, I was incredibly fortunate to recognize that while I could continue on for a few years and just kind of hang around, um, the opportunity that was afforded to me to go and 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 work in the front offices of multiple teams was something that I couldn't pass up, and it was the best thing I ever did because it introduced me to a part of the game that you are insulated from as a player mm. uh, and, and understandably so, but all of these incredible men and women that work within the game that don't kick the ball, but sell the game and market the game uh, and, you know, spread the gospel, if you will, day in and day out, most for very little money and most for very little rec recognition. And so it gave me uh, uh, an incredible respect for all of, all of these people. But, Ultimately, I was also fortunate to be around when uh, the sport, and in this case, Major League Soccer, they wanted to do something big and bold. And that's where the Beckham thing came, something that had never been done before, something that was going to not only put the Los Angeles Galaxy, who I was the president of uh, right there on the map, but put the league on notice and the world on notice. And certainly when you, <laughs> when you hire for a lot of money, I should say, one of the most famous people on earth in David Beckham, that's exactly what it did. It also has a lot of challenges that you can't anticipate. Some you can and some that you can't. But in the same way, I've seen that happen over the last year with what Messi has done. Because let's be honest, we want the tent as big as possible. And I say we, soccer, we want as many people coming into the tent as possible. And when you have players like Beckham and Messi, there is a curiosity factor and they transcend just the soccer people and you know for major league soccer for example i always say major league soccer's problem isn't that there aren't soccer fans in the u.s it's that there's not enough mls fans and so now when you associate david beckham with the los angeles galaxy and major league soccer and to this day he is still associated with that even with his ownership now and it's really ironic that he's one of the people that's actually doing the same thing now with his team down at inter miami and the yeah. same thing happens with messi people that don't even watch soccer or care that much about soccer, they want to go see this because we all recognize that this is arguably the greatest player ever to play the game. And now that it's happening in your backyard or you can go to your local team and see Messi play, you know, that's a moment that, uh, that people will pay for. And that's a moment that people value. In my research for our, our chat today, I, I was reading an interview from about 10 years ago, and the, the interviewer asked you, Ronaldo or, or Messi? And at the time you said Ronaldo. How do you feel now? Yeah, so I, I mean, this is an evergreen topic uh, within soccer. And and it's really that the camps are very different in the way that they see not just the players, but the way they see the game and the way they, I guess, maybe even see life. I always said that, that Cristiano Ronaldo, for me, the reason why I always came down on his side, and I still come down on, on his side, um, is that he is larger than life. If If you didn't know anything about soccer and you watched Messi walk down the street, Nobody's going to say, hey, there goes arguably the greatest player ever to play the game. Now, that in and of itself is maybe 
me making a case for Messi that he is able to do it. And that's what soccer ultimately is. Right. But I like my soccer players, whether they're, uh, you know, here or anybody else. I like them bigger than life. I like stars. Uh, I like, I like flash. I like sexiness. I like, I like beautiful ego. I like arrogance. I like all of that. And certainly Cristiano Ronaldo, especially relative to Messi. And that's why this setup has worked so well over the years is that they are the anti of each other and they do things so completely differently. And yet they're so effective on the field. So I'm still sticking with Ronaldo. And and you're a larger than life personality yourself, Alexi. So that doesn't really surprise me that that's what you would be attracted to. Well, I mean, so many, many years ago when I would be sitting at home and you know watching MTV or, or whatever or thinking about my life going forward, I always approached even my, um, you know, my career on the field is I'm a performer. Uh, that's not a pejorative. I always recognized that um, I wanted to go out there in front of people, which is ultimately a stage, right? And that is ultimately an audience just like anything else. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to react. Now, sometimes they react where they're cheering and screaming for you. Sometimes maybe there's even the, the punk aesthetic of being spat on and people screaming and yelling. And I've been in plenty of those situations where, you know, they, they're, they're saying horrible things about you, but they're paying attention. And so I guess in that sense, uh, guilty is charged in that whether you liked me or didn't like me, I wanted you to pay attention. So and, and I've used that throughout my career and everything that, that I've done. But it can't overshadow, obviously, the value and the quality that you bring. Um, when it comes to uh, the performance and that you are a performer and that you say that you are an entertainer or performer. I know some people cringe at that. I am incredibly proud of that. And I like my athletes to recognize that they are in a form of entertainment and they are performers ultimately. We're going to talk about music shortly, but let's just jump back to international soccer for a moment. This sure. summer, um, we're speaking right now in December of 2023. The U.S. men's national team uh, appointed a new coach, Greg Berhalter, to, to lead the team into the next World Cup, which will take place in the U.S., Canada and Mexico in 2026. Now, host nations don't have to go through the two years of qualifying for the competition. How do you think that impacts preparation? So 2026 is going to be huge. It's going to be a, a moment of opportunity. Um, you know, I, I obviously I'm associated with 1994. And as I told you earlier, it changed my life and it changed the landscape of soccer and sports in the United States. And now in 2026, coming back to the United States with our friends to the North Canada, our friends to South Mexico, this is a great opportunity because now the world is coming back in to a landscape that is so fundamentally different. I mean, we are a soccer culture, all right? Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. It's a little bit different and it's a little uh, unique, but I think that there is value and power to that. But we have fan bases, we have incredible stadiums. Um, we have a really discerning type of American soccer fan out there out of necessity in that they think they think globally, they act locally, but they understand they are part of this global uh, type of thing. 2026 is a huge opportunity for us once again, and Greg Berhalter, the head coach of the U.S. men's national team, to show how far we've come. And the expectations have arisen, especially with this group that we have now when it comes to U.S. soccer. This is what you might call a golden generation, if you will. But I also think that it's the result of a lot of seeds that have been planted along the way. And we're seeing kind of the the, fru the fruition of all, all of this, but therefore higher expectations because ultimately from a men's perspective, we've already done it consistently on a women's side, it's to win a World Cup. Now, is that a panacea? Does that change everything? No, but it's a pretty nice injection to have. And it is something that is missing. And it's a lot, to be quite honest, it's also something 
that others use against the U.S. when we're constantly doing this compare and contrast. What about preparation, though? Um, for, yeah. for most teams, they have to play two years of qualifying games to actually get to the World Cup. The host nation never has to has to do that. And it only just occurred to me this morning, um, you know, to ask the question, how does that uh, affect preparation for a World Cup? So we did this back in 94 uh, because we were hosting and we didn't have to go through a qualifying process. And we ended up actually having um, a home base in, you know, down south of here in Laguna Beach. And it was a a camp for two years, basically. And we just traveled around the world and played games. It'll be a little, little different. No, it'll be a lot different this time because most of our players are playing around the world at some great clubs out there. So the opportunities, the windows that we have, we will still get games, but it's going to be slim pickings because a lot of these teams are going to be qualifying, especially the good elite teams that you want to test yourself with. And so for the next couple of years, it's really, really important that we use the competitive opportunities that we get. For example, next summer here in the United States, we have Copa America that the United States is going to be a part of. And, you know, not to get into too much in the weeds ultimately, but this is like a mini World Cup that's going to happen next summer that involves our region of the world and South America. And this is a great opportunity to play against the likes of Brazil and Argentina, Messi, Neymar, these types of uh, teams, uh, obviously with some others, including Mexico, our biggest rival here within, within our region. But these are now competitive games, and that's really where you're going to get it. But to your point, I don't want to cry or anything here, but it does make it more difficult in that you don't get that blooding that happens through a qualification process that, you know, with many teams going for sometimes two years where they're traveling around and, and it's and it's hard and you're playing in different environments and different places. And eventually you get you get to the to the World Cup. But those teams that get to the World Cup are a function of everything that has come before. And for the U.S., not having enough of those competitive games, it certainly could work against the team. You mentioned the uh, the women's team here here in the U.S. and the Women's World Cup was this year played in Australia and New Zealand, with Spain ultimately being crowned the champions. And the women's game has exploded in the last uh, decade, well, two decades really, in Europe, where there's a women's champions league now and uh, leading European clubs investing in women's teams. And I think it's fair to say that here in the U.S., the women's national team has led the charge winning the Women's World Cup four times. I read something a little bit earlier today that said women's soccer is outpacing every other sport in America. Just how big do you think the women's game can get? I mean, it can get huge. And and because I think it's not being treated as a charity, uh, it's being treated as a business. And so I think from a business perspective, not only here in the US, but I think to your point around the world, people are recognizing it as, look, this is, this is not just out of the goodness of our heart. This is not just about because it's the right thing to do. This is about, hey, there's gold in them, there hills. So let's get, let's get going. To your point about the US, look, the reason why we have had an advantage for now multiple decades is because many decades ago, we even from a, a, a legislative perspective, put in place laws that have enabled uh, equity and equality when it comes to uh, women's, women's sports. And we have reaped the benefit of not only the laws in place, but also a culture that has accepted women's uh, women athletes and women's sports to a much greater extent than other countries and cultures, and especially and specifically when it comes uh, when it comes to soccer. And so we have had this head start. But the rest of the world, to your point, has an existing infrastructure, right? And so they can turn on that faucet that is your, you know, your Chelsea's and your Manchester United's and your Bayern Munich's and all of these different big, big clubs and add 
a women's component to it with the existing infrastructure, which means that they can make up a, a lot of distance very, very quickly. And we saw it there this summer. And I think this was a rude awakening, but one that had to happen when it comes to the U.S. in that the rest of the world with, let's be honest, even some minimal type of investment can make up can make great strides. And I think the rest of the world is coming. It's a good thing from a competitive standpoint. And I hope it lights a fire under this U.S. team to get back to winning World Cups, because to your point, these women and this team have been rock stars for a number of years. And to have a major failure, and for those that don't know, the U.S. bombed out uh, at the World Cup this summer, that was a huge stinging type of moment. And there has been a reassessment. They've just hired a new coach in Emma Hayes, uh, English woman uh, who has American experience too in her past. And I'm really, really bullish on what she can do and the opportunity that she has to kind of bring this team back where everybody loves this team and everybody recognizes that this is something to get behind and ultimately they keep winning. Talk about how things have changed. I remember the first World Cup I saw on TV in the US. Uh, I got here in 1988. In 1990, okay. I watched the World Cup and the games were only on cable. They were on TNT and they would break away during live games to go to commercials. Things really have changed. It's it's amazing when you talk about you know the tele you know the the broadcast world of soccer and that's why I say you know when it comes to American soccer fans uh, you might have experienced this before in this day and age now we'll have people that will come over from Europe and they're just amazed at the amount of soccer that is available and we have really kind of been spoiled relative to many countries and cultures around the world and. And and it's wonderful that we are able to see it now. But as the saying goes, you've come a long way, baby, in terms of the broadcast right now. And, you know, whether it's Copa America next summer, Women's World Cups, Men's World World Cups, uh, leagues that are that are being broadcast. The EPL is huge here. People sometimes people don't realize that the number one soccer league in terms of, of uh, viewership in the United States is actually Liga MX. Um, and so, the, again, the soccer people, if you will, they are here and they're getting more and more each and every day. But we also have this incredible diet that comes in from all around the world. And so rather, unlike other sports in the U.S. where everything else, either they don't do it around the world or they do it at a much lower level. We, when it comes to soccer, have always had to compare and contrast with everywhere else around in the world. And that's a very different type of competitive environment to be in than traditional American sports. It's been very exciting as a fan just to see how much the game has grown in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And, and as you said, there's so much uh, on, on television now. And and it really is a, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry, obviously. And when there's that kind of money involved, then people are investing in the future of the sport. And that's, I guess, what we've been talking about. When when you look at it, um, you know, we, we in the United States, I think from, a, like I said, multiple decades ago, we recognize that this is a sport that's cheap to play. Anybody can play it. I mean, to our point about Messi walking down the street, you don't have to be huge. You don't have to be necessarily strong and fast. Now, you can also look at Erlen Holland or uh, Kylian Mbappe, and, and certainly some of these players are big and strong and fast, but you don't have to be. And that lends itself to more people, uh, more people playing it, which is fine. But now we also have to talk about, you know, the business of soccer. And that's really, really interesting. For example, you know, you look at Kansas City right now that is in the process of building their own soccer-specific stadium for their women's team. And all of this infrastructure that exists around the game and these pathways and these, you know, a young boy or girl that wakes up today 
here, and we're, we're recording in December of 2023, wakes up today, you know, it, maybe in the suburbs of Detroit where I grew up or any place else. I think about what their relationship is to the game. And it's so dramatically different. And it makes me so proud that, that they have no idea about what went on before. And they get up and they're able to, your point, watch any league in the world. They're able to watch, you know, their Women's World Cup team play, but they're able to watch their own leagues within their country, whether it's MLS or NWSL or USL, and the list goes on and on and on. They're able to, also, let's be honest, not um, <laughs> be embarrassed that they play soccer. And there was a point where, I mean, you, if you were a soccer player, you got called names, <laughs> you got looked at very, very differently. And that has changed dramatically uh, over the last few decades and for the good and for the positive, not just of the game, but I think of the country. Let's turn to our music questions. And just to give people uh, a clue as to how important music is to you. Uh, I saw a quote from you where you said that as cool as it was for you to walk out on the field to play against Brazil in a World Cup, it was just as cool for you, is just as cool for you to walk out on a stage and play music for people. How do those experiences compare? So I think it goes back to, you know, my my belief that I'm a performer and an entertainer. So like any performer or entertainer, um, I put on a costume, right? Same thing as a jersey a kit, whatever you want to call it. You walk out on the stage, same thing as a, as a field. You go in front of, you know, the fans and a crowd, which is ultimately just like anything else when you're going, you're going in front of. And how you look, your aesthetic, all of that kind of stuff, uh, kind of stuff matters. And, and you, and, and sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it doesn't go great, but also there's rehearsal and there's practice. And that ultimately is what shines when you do have that performance out on the field and without it, you're, you're, uh, you're lost. And so I always looked at it like any other performance, whether I was walking onto a field to play a soccer game or whether I was walking on a stage to, uh, to play a song or something, something like that. And I mean, music has been in my life well before I was kicking a ball, certainly in my life past when I stopped kicking a ball, it's a huge, huge part of, uh, part of my life, something that I love. Um, and something that I have continued to do uh, year after year after year. And, you know, when when all is said and done, I won't be kicking a ball when I'm really, really old, but I'll probably still have a guitar somewhere near me. What is your first musical memory? Okay, so my first musical memory probably has to go back to my mom. And, you know, she was a kind of a hippie, but but not ridiculous in that, you know, she had like a madrigals group that she was in. And I, you know, I vividly remember her sitting with her acoustic guitar and who knows what song it was. I don't know. I gave my love a cherry or, you know, one of those types of uh, Joan Baez's type type of type of moments right. and listening to her and then seeing all of her madrigal group come in and hearing all of these songs being sung. And so um and and she was a piano player too, and so it, it dovetails into my first uh, memory of actually playing music. And I like a lot of kids in history. I was told you're going to take piano lessons, and I was sent kicking and screaming down the two blocks to Mrs. Van Heusen's house, and I hated my mom. Oh my god! And I remember trudging down those two blocks. And yet it introduced me to something. And I love my mom so much for introducing me to something that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. And God bless, uh, you know, Mrs. Van Heusen for the patience that she showed when she was teaching me about how, and she was teaching me not just about hearing music, but also about 
the mathematics of music and the, the formulas of music, especially when it comes to a lot of the music that I like and the pop type of world uh, that's out there. And it, it gave me something, like I said, that I didn't know I needed. And now I, I can't even fathom living without it. So you started on the piano. When did the guitar come into your life? So my mom taught me a couple of chords and I was starting to play. And I grew up, again, following my mom, kind of not just playing piano, but also uh, being involved in music, in uh, vocal groups and whether it was acapella stuff or barbershop stuff, all that kind of stuff from a school perspective. And then the proverbial garage band thing started to happen from a very young age. And we would get together and it wasn't even about picking players that you liked. It was like, well, Johnny's got a guitar <laughs> and that's how a lot of groups kind of get started. Then you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, I started to recognize that the guitar is a lot cooler to, uh, to girls, uh, which is always, you know, it's an age old type of thing. It's always what it comes down to. Right. Exactly. So my mom taught me a couple chords. I took a guitar, said, I got it from here, mom. Thanks. And then I would just watch and absorb whoever I was playing with or whoever I saw. And by the way, for, for, for those that don't remember, this wasn't the age of YouTube or anything. You couldn't slow. I mean, if you were slowing something down to learn how to play, you literally had a record player and you were slowing the tempo down uh, in order to play it slowly to try to figure out what was going on. We had to really work for that back then. What was the first music you bought with your own money? I, I vividly remember buying Queen's, uh, let's see, that would have been another one bites the dust, but mm. the B side was don't try suicide. And I vividly remember coming home with that and my mom taking away from me at night when I had gone to sleep or something like that because she was so worried about the the suicide part of that song you know I, I have all these memories of these first songs but buying something so like I, I remember where I was when I first heard air supply um and I remember where I was when I first heard Steve Winwood's uh why you see a chance. I mean, that intro to why you see see a chance still gets me to this day. I'll, I'll just stop everything that I'm doing when I, when I hear that. Um, my first record that I was ever given was a Rolling Stones record. I like your hat, by the way. Uh, and it's right. amazing that here in 2023, we're talking about yet another tour and they're continuing on. But when, you know, when I think back, uh, you know, th this Rolling Stone thing was just amazing uh because well, rock and roll rolling stones it was a picture of their heads and a bunch of motorcycles and stuff like that and i remember getting that and letting that needle drop i remember going next door to my neighbor's house and them playing led zeppelin for me and the rolling stone you know lips uh tongue thing was they had painted it on their wall it was like it was like such a that 70s show moment we were like in his basement and you could smell all sorts of things and i was just mesmerized and i remember I'll never forget putting down the needle and a whole lot of love coming out. And I just couldn't believe what my what my eyes were hearing. And so, you know, then you, you get a little bit of money and this and that, and you pick and choose as to what's what's going on. And so probably around, you know, 83 or 84, it probably would have been Pyromania from Def Leppard or my favorite group ever, which is Rat um, and Out of the Cellar, which had been out in 1984. I should just give a little context. You said, I like your hat. I have a, a beanie on with the with yes. the Stones lips logo on. Um, and, and talking of, of the Stones, live music, let's sort of jump into that. I, I will tell you that I saw the Stones in 1976. I was 19. And I went because everybody said, you better see them now because they're not going to be doing this forever. And as, as you mentioned, they just put out a new album and they'll be on tour next year at 80. It's really good, by the way. The new album's really good. I mean, it's just it's just amazing uh, what, what, what they have done. And they've actually... 
you know, I mean, they put they had a single out years ago called Don't Stop. And you know, like they just they know what they're doing. And Mick is so wonderful in, in understanding where his register is and where his parameters are and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's just an amazing, amazing story uh, and, and just so much quality. It's just nuts. What was the first live music you saw, the first concert you went to? So the first live music I went to uh, would have been Crimes of Passion Tour, Pat Benatar at the Pine Knob Music Theater. And this would have been September 18th, 1981. Um, I was 11 years old. My 16-year-old, uh, my friend's 16-year-old sister drove, I can't believe my mom let us do this, right? There's a 16-year-old driving a bunch of, a couple of 11-year-olds to Pine Knob to see Pat Benatar. And again, I walked in and I was just, this is the best thing ever. The sounds and the sights and the smells. I mean, I'll never, ever forget that. That was that was magical. What do you listen to when you want to dance? So I'm not a big dancer. Uh, I, I will move, but I recognize my limitations when it comes to it. Uh, so there, there's some George Michael stuff that I, that I think is awesome. Robbie Williams, actually, his dance stuff is really, really good. I love Robbie Williams just from a pop perspective, but his dance stuff is really, really good. PM Dawn, I love. There's a song called Downtown Venus. I love Downtown Venus because it's got like any dance song that actually has some rock guitar and a really kind of definitive uh, thing. Even, you know, so I'll give you another example, like, um, uh, like, what would Slash play on uh, Michael Jackson's Bad or whatever like that. I love when they when they incorporate some, uh, you know, some good hard rock and guitar, but it's still a dance song. Going uh, So I so those are some things that I probably would put on. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? I think one of the saddest songs ever written and performed, and in that sense makes it one of the most brilliant songs ever, is uh, I Can't Make You Love Me, performed by Bonnie Raitt. I just, I mean, that thought, that song slays me. It just uh, it says everything that you need to, to say. Uh, it does it simply, but, it's, but, there, but there's layered textures. So yeah, I mean, that, that song, like I said, that, that song makes me, it makes me feel good in my sadness, I guess. If you could only pick one song, that you could listen to for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is brutal, man. You are brutal. Let's see. I, I, there's, a, there's a song, uh, Amy Mann, who is a wonderful solo artist. Um, her old band, Till Tuesday, had about three albums. And there's a song called Coming Up Close. And I love, I love that song. I actually, uh, for years and years, I used to play it on takeoff of every single flight that I took. And all I did was travel for years and years and years. So that was like my my flight takeoff song and it's just it's a beautiful um uh, there's a there's a quote in it um don't you know that i can make a dream that's only half awake come true and i just i love i love her writing i love her singing i love uh the melody of that so that would be certainly one of them that i would that i would take if it was if i could only listen to one song you referenced being a kid and watching mtv do you have a, a favorite music video look i mean i remember where i was when i first saw like, cause you know, I was heavily into the eighties glam, I guess you would call it hair, whatever you want to call it. I remember where I was when I first saw talk dirty to me from, uh, from poison, uh, and that, what, what that was. But I also remember, I mean, I think like welcome to the jungle and what that was and how it kind of broke away from the eighties uh, hair metal mode. I mean, when I, when I saw that and you know where you are and all that kind of stuff, that was like, whoa. Oh, oh my goodness. And then, I mean, you can't go wrong with uh, Whitesnake. Here I go again, right? I mean, if you're going to watch something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great video, great performance. Um, 
Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I, in this day and age, as you know, it's it's much less about albums and it's much more about singles. Ironically, kind of back to the way it once started, right, with singles. But exactly. So I have I have a a Spotify playlist that is entitled Life, and so I as I travel around, uh, you know, it could be in the lobby of a hotel or it could be on a on a plane or something like that. If I hear a song that I like, you know, I immediately find out what it is and we can do that today now too it's not you know where we're running around saying hey you know the one that goes blah 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 blah." you know i mean you can you have we all have the apps now that uh that do it and so i just have this this chronicle and what i guess and amounts to a uh, a diary if you will of all of these different things just from my uh uh you know interesting musical perspective i think justin hawkins uh who was the lead singer of the darkness i think he does a really really cool youtube show and talks about music in a really, really interesting way. And he's also a really good, uh, really good writer. I-, I love when, when people, when we talked about the stones earlier, I love when people that I wouldn't expect come out with really kind of cool things. And it's hard, especially when you've kind of been pigeonholed into something. So for example, uh, Donnie V who many m- won't know, but he was the, uh, and I guess still is to a certain extent, one of the singers and founding members of a group called enough's enough. Uh, he came out with something called Beautiful Things years ago. I think that's a, an incredible song. And they were always compared to the Beatles and they were very Beatlesque in what, they, what they've done. I think that's really, really cool. And again, I just go, I go through this list and there's just random, like I said, individual songs. And it's almost unfair to the groups because they put so much time and effort into the albums and really it comes down to now it's just these one songs. And as opposed to in the past where that one song would make you buy the album, now it's just well that's all that's the one song that i want so everything changes i mean we talked about football at the beginning of this soccer at the beginning of this conversation and you know the way soccer is played has changed different tactics different plans i mean everything shifts in the way that we yeah. watch it uh, and it's the same with music the way we listen to music as you said it used to be albums and before that it was singles and now we've gone back to people listening to just songs i think the ipod really did that where everybody could sort of shuffle um their their music and it's you can constantly discover new music as you said with the apps you can be in a hotel lobby you hear something you hit shazam boom you've got the song you add it to your playlist it's it it really is amazing and look i know there is the tendency and not just in soccer but in music to grumpy old man these things or grumpy old one these things and i get it i've been there i've done that too and you know uh, get off my lawn types uh, types of things but you know the the best artists i think and the best you know maybe leaders when it comes to an industry either anticipate these things ahead of time or you know they they bob and weave and they bend and they are flexible enough to recognize that things change and the the interesting thing and again i guess this is ironic is that it's it's funny to me to see when people that rebelled or or were against what was the norm the tradition back then now get bent out of shape when the exact same thing is happening <laughs> either to them or or around them which makes again going back to the stones and what they were able or, or have been able to do over the years just that much more that that much more amazing is there a band or artist that you personally love, but you feel that they never quite got the big break they should have gotten? You know, there's people like the Sundays. I mean, I thought that they were just incredible and, you know, an incredible lead female lead singer that I, I think, and look, they they had their, their time and they had some singles and stuff like that, but I thought that they could have been really, really big. You know, the, the one and done type of 
phenomenon. For example, like the New Radicals uh, when they came out and, you know, they had uh, You Get What You Give or whatever. The, you know, mm. it was a major song. It still played to this day. And we know that it it didn't implode. It was kind of designed not to continue on. But it would have been really interesting, given how strong that that debut was, if they just didn't have anything left to give or, you know, they just were burnt out immediately and they've gone on you know the, the lead singer and the, and the lead writer is a, is a great producer and all that kind of stuff but you know there's a there's a couple of uh a couple of bands there marvelous three um which was a band in the 90s had a couple of hits but they didn't get as big i i saw them live they were they are to this day one of the best lies live bands i have ever seen they were a trio and that they could produce that as a trio puts them up in my estimation with the rushes and the triumphs out there they disbanded and Butch Walker, who was the lead writer and the lead singer, has gone on to incredible things in terms of producing and writing and and still performing as a solo artist there. But I thought that they could have been bigger. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? No, because I don't I'm not ashamed or guilty about anything that I listen to. Hell, I've, in, in this show, I've already talked to you about, you know, air supply and, and, and that kind of stuff. And. I, I don't feel guilty by any stretch of the imagination saying that, uh, you know, that I listened to rat and air supply and it, the list goes on and on and on of different things. I am a huge yacht rock fan. I mean, and, and I know that whole genre gets looked down on um, and a lot of genres do, but if you start listening to some of that, first off, like actually like the, uh, the hair metal, if you will, a lot of the proficiency and the musicianship, within the within that genre is really really amazing and when you start listening to you know a, a yacht rock channel or something like that and the harmonies and the writing and again the um the instrumentation that goes on it's really really incredible what they were doing and some of the quality that was coming coming out there so no i don't i don't think i have a uh, a guilty pleasure they're all you know they're all out there for everybody to mock if that's what if that's what <laughs> makes you feel better <laughs> Man, I'm I'm a live and live and let live kind of guy, man. You know, it's like I don't have to like everything to respect it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and also to your point about the world we live in now, the good part is that music is so much more available and the cost of making it is you know almost nothing now. The the bad part is that the cost of making it is nothing and everybody can make it and it and our world is just glutted with all of this stuff and i if it's art it's art all right and we all know that it's subjective and you know you you've been around long enough to know that just because you like it doesn't mean somebody else does and 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 vice versa and i don't ever want a world i was i was doing a panel actually a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about this subject and i said i don't want to ever live in a world where i am stunting more art or more people expressing themselves whether i like it or not actually is irrelevant the fact that so many people more people now than in the past can be creative mm. and can put stuff out and get that out of them it just means the chances of incredible stuff coming out i get, i think are better now you do have to get through the flotsam jetson you got you got to wade through a lot of stuff to get there and that's where i think a lot of people uh, you know, uh, scream and yell about it. But if you take the time to do it, I think that you can get to more good stuff because there are, there are people that in the past, let's be honest, in the traditional past, we never would have heard a word from. 
We've got one question left uh, of the questionnaire that I ask everybody. But before we get to it, I do want to just talk to you a little bit about your own music, because as somebody who has written and recorded uh, a bunch of music yourself, as I'm looking at you now on the, in the Zoom room, I can see you're in your studio. There's guitars on, on, on the wall. Um, how often do you pick up a guitar? How often do you sit down and try to write? Every day. Uh, I try. Uh, a lot of it is crap. Uh, and some of it well, some of it to others may be crap, but at least I look at it and value it a little bit little bit more. I continue to write and to record and continue to put out stuff for all three of my fans, including my mother. But, uh, you know, the reality <laughs> is that I love doing it. It is something that is certainly cathartic. Um, it's something that I have to do. Uh, to your point about, you know, the studio, I have stuff set up here where I can each and every day, you know, work on something and I, I get into the zone and I'm, and I'm going and um, it's, it's the best waste of hours, if you will, that I could, uh, that I can come up with. And I don't ever want to stop being able to uh, be able to do that. And so a guitar is always near and the ease and the speed in which you can now work up a song relative to the past makes it that much, that much better for me. And you know, I'll I'll put out some new stuff here in the next uh, year or so, probably leading up to uh, to twenty six, and uh, we'll see if we can get four people. <laughs> Grow the fan base, Alexi. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and our final question: How are you feeling right now? I am feeling, um, I am feeling positive, but I am also feeling a little bit um, frustrated and angry with the world in which we live in and the moment in which we live in. However, I am a glass half full person. And I do believe that there are better days to come. I do believe that, you know, rather than grumpy old manning things, that there, that there is a generation to come that is going to recognize the error of our ways. When I talk about our generation, we certainly aren't perfect and weren't perfect going forward. And I do hope that they take our country and our culture and our world ultimately in a in a more positive direction. But, you know, we live in interesting times. We live in, unfortunately, dangerous times. And I'm not just talking about wars and that traditional types of danger, but even the things that you say or the way that you say things can be weaponized and armed. And that's not, you know, a world or a country that I that I want to live in. And I do think that it has a natural course to take and that at some point, we will get to a point where where maybe, you know, as we've talked about before, we head back into a different direction and maybe things are all cyclical and we come back into a much more forgiving and, and a much more, I think, kind type of place to be. Man, it's been so much fun hanging out with you just for a few minutes talking about soccer and, and about music. Thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. It's a pleasure and an honor. Like I said, I love, uh, you know, I love I love what you do. Uh, and I love to talk about the, these things. So let's uh, let's do it again. I would love to do that. Alexi, thank you. Thank you. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>